This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Becca had fallen asleep while tanning again. She knew not by the tightness of her skin or the soft but persistent burn on her ears and neck, but by the way the sound seemed far off. The lapping of the waves was softer than it should have been, muffled, as if she herself was underwater. She was certainly still dreaming, because just in front of her was an honest-to-goodness pirate ship. She braced herself to be swept up by Orlando Bloom, but there was no such luck. A group of grubby-looking men stroked towards her in a small boat. The fog of the dream world held in place as they grabbed her with weathered hands, looping salt-hardened rope around her wrists. They lifted her up as she finally found the will to struggle. They dragged her through the underbrush, away from the beach and down a barely seen path. Sand fleas bit at her skin, and the tendrils of the undergrowth clutched at her, as if they were trying to hold her back, to warn her. A great building loomed in the distance, a ramshackle colonial, lit from the inside by candlelight. She could hear the carousing from here. But the regulars at the tavern paid Becca no mind when she whimpered and then screamed as the pirates carried her squirming body up the stairs to a concealed door. They threw her into a bare room and deadbolted it behind them. She fought against her bonds, but they wouldn't give. She lifted her eyes to find a window, framing the clouded moon. Her instinct to escape overwhelmed her fears as she kicked through the glass, two large pieces sticking at her feet. She pushed her body out, and then she was falling. Becca found herself on her back in the small Higby Beach parking lot. People and their dogs strolled by in their L.L. Bean beachwear, canvas bags over their shoulders. Disoriented, she braced herself to stand up. But when her foot hit the too-hot blacktop, she screamed in pain. The ground beneath her was covered in broken glass. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday... I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Higby Beach, a bayside recreation area in Cape May, whose original owner is still searching for his grave, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as Parcast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you visit New Jersey's Cape May, you'll find beautiful turn-of-the-20th-century architecture and a long, charming promenade. Beachgoers and vacationers flock to the area in the high season, handing their $12 weekend beach passes to the guards and setting down towels beside the Atlantic Ocean before heading back to their Victorian bed and breakfasts to wash the salt and sand from their hair. But if you head northwest to County Highway 641, a two-lane affair more commonly called New England Road, and follow it to the Delaware Bay, you'll find Higby Beach. It's a wildlife management area now, and one of the most popular birding sites in the United States. But there's a stillness to the place that many visitors have remarked on, a quiet that overtakes the area's signature warbler's call. Though it's been reclaimed by the wilds that surround it, the beach played host to a tavern-turned-hotel that often housed dangerous characters. And if the reports of mysterious shadows and feelings of being watched indicate anything, it's that Higby Beach doesn't just belong to the birds. Higby Beach has had many different lives since it was first settled in the 17th century. One of the first crops of the area were sea plums, and some of the plum orchards near Higby are still in operation. The beach sits at the head of the Cape May Canal, where it meets Delaware Bay. In 1807, Rhoda Forest established a popular tavern in the area. The tavern and surrounding farmland were eventually bought by Joseph and Thomas Higby and turned into the Hermitage Hotel. The Hermitage Hotel was said to have been a popular place for pirates to hide captives while they were holding them for ransom. But the property was torn down in 1940, and it was eventually claimed by the wilderness. Edda Gregory wanted her uncle dug up. He was to be removed from his secluded brick and marble monument in the woods near Higby Beach to join her in her funeral plot in Cold Spring Cemetery beside the Presbyterian Church. She seemed not to care that this went against his own express wishes. Just as he had spelled out his terms in his will, she spelled out the exhumation and reburial process in meticulous detail in hers. She did offer him a small, if strange, condolence, a half-apology. The now-empty grave would be filled with sand from the beach, his beach, the place he'd asked to remain for the rest of his days. There was no one to oppose her, no family left to object. Perhaps it was that no one cared at all. Zachariah Hastings had always loved visiting Higby's grave. It was a bit of a professional interest, it was true. But his job at a stone etcher at his father's funeral home only helped him further appreciate the craftsmanship. 
the small brick structure with a marble overlay, the simple elegance that housed the man's remains. The woods were peaceful here. You could hear the birds call and the soft waves beyond. It was a respectful but permanent mark of the Higby family's time on this land, not holding the wilds at bay, but living beside them. The Great Depression had hit the citizens of Cape May hard, and Zachariah's father's business was no exception. When the worries became too much, Zachariah often took the path away from the beach and towards the site of the Hermitage Hotel. He knew the place had had its heyday twice over, once as a refugee for pirates, and then as a stop for bootleggers on their way to the bigger cities like Philadelphia, New York, and even Boston. But Prohibition had ended almost five years ago, and now it seemed the Higby's adopted niece, Etta Gregory, just didn't have her heart in the place. It was no surprise when she passed in 1937 that her intentions were for it to be sold. But even Zachariah hadn't expected her strange request to disinter her Uncle Thomas. Zachariah knew it wasn't his business, but he was appalled. It was true that the cemetery was easier to keep up, but it didn't have honeysuckle bushes or soft breezes at night. It was as cold and quiet as the people underneath the soil. Edda was taking his refuge from him, and she was disrupting the eternal slumber of Higby in the process. It wasn't right, but they didn't pay him to be right. They paid him to deal with the dead. He offered to do the initial demolition of the grave himself, but only if he could be alone. It gave him room to say goodbye to the place he'd been visiting for most of his life, and it was an opportunity to show respect to a great man's wishes when no one else would. He sat by the stone for half an hour, talking to it about the sights and thanking Higby for the peace he'd given him. Zachariah pressed his hand against the cold stone one last time and felt it moving slightly under his touch. He tried to gently use a chisel to remove the person-sized marble slab at the center of the monument, but nothing, not even a crowbar, would budge it. Zachariah told himself it would be all right. He'd been planning to make a replica of the etching in any case and had memorized the stone in all his visits. There was no room for a slab of this size in the new plot anyway. Though it would hurt his artist's heart, he knew what he had to do. Zachariah gripped the sledgehammer tightly, raised it over his head, and swung down. He could feel the sound in his body, as if it was tearing something inside of him. He raised the hammer again and brought it back down on the stone. Marble dust clung to his arms as shards flew into the earth. Higby's name had been smashed into nothing. The next layer was brick, and it went just as easy. Flecks of red covered his forearms. He continued breaking through the layers until there was nothing left but earth, exposed to the air for the first time in over half a century. The wind, which had been still all day, started blowing. The speed was faster than he was used to, and it kicked up dust in the air, 
coating his eyes and even his tongue. It tasted earthy and awful, but there was another note he couldn't place. Iron, maybe? Like the blood that would stick to his teeth after a round of boxing. As larger flecks of stone began to batter his face, Zachariah couldn't see. He closed his eyes and tried to step back, his arms shielding them. But then a larger piece of stone hit him in the shoulder, knocking his arm away. Zachariah stumbled from the shock. He backed farther away from the old tomb, making his way closer to the hotel. When he could finally brush the debris from his eyes, he turned around and stared at the tomb. Everything was as he left it, every crumble of rock in place, unmoved by the wind. Even the broken stone lay where he neatly piled it off to the side. He rubbed the swiftly growing welt on his arm, confused. The sun was sinking low, and it seemed best to him to return in the morning. He didn't want to make his way back through the woods by lamplight. At dinner, Zachariah tried to talk to his father about it. Mr. Hastings wiped his mouth with an already soiled napkin and said that gusts happened sometimes. If the wind could pick things up, it could put them down again. There was nothing to worry about. When you spend your days with cadavers, dressing them, painting them, preparing them for final goodbyes before placing them into a quiet, dark place, you quickly learned that the dead held no power after they died. Their only strength came from the memories of the living. Zechariah had never had reason to question this, and he'd considered his discomfort with Etta's actions to be a matter of principle, nothing more. But after his experience that afternoon, he wondered if he and Mr. Higby were somehow of the same mind. The next day, the tomb was as he left it. His father's men got to work removing the coffin, but Zachariah held back. In the distance, he saw a man in a long black coat, framed by the marsh grass at his feet and the dying tree over his head. It seemed foolish to wear a thick coat in the heat, but the man didn't appear to notice. His dapper bowler hat cast shadows on his face, and the late morning sun kept him in partial silhouette. Zachariah felt a cold shiver race down his back, an electricity dancing between the beads of sweat. The stones he'd broken the day before still lay stacked to the side, but the hole they'd dug looked far deeper than it was supposed to be, as if a chasm sat below the casket, ready to swallow them up. The other men lifted the sealed coffin out of the ground with a system of ropes and pulleys, then slid two poles in a frame to prepare Thomas Higby for his last walk through the woods. As they finished, Zachariah grabbed a shovel and headed to the beach to fulfill Etta's last strange request. A mark of Higby Beach would now rest where Thomas Higby's body had been. Zachariah dug into the sand as his father's youngest worker, George, followed him with a small wheelbarrow. George was superstitious. He didn't want anything to do with the desecration of a grave, but he'd agreed to cart the sand around once the body was gone. Zachariah's hands burned from the work he'd done yesterday, 
but he was ready to be rid of this job and head back to his engraver's tools. They'd place the sand quickly. The sand was easy enough to shovel, but he couldn't shake the sensation that someone was watching him work. George whispered to Zachariah that a man in black was standing on the beach near them. Zachariah pointed out that this was a public beach now. Anyone could stand where they wanted. George replied in an urgent whisper that he could see through the man. Zachariah dropped his shovel and looked up, but no one was there. It's the sun, he told George. It messes with your head. They worked in silence until the wheelbarrow was full. The two men pushed it back towards the gravesite. But when they were in sight of the now empty work area, Zachariah dropped his shovel in astonishment. The massive marble slab he had broken into pieces yesterday was now perfectly intact, lying beside the grave, ready to be slid into place. Zachariah knelt down and placed his hand against the stone. Solid. Zachariah fought his instincts and looked up at the dead tree. There was the man again, shrouded in darkness, even though it was high noon. Zachariah tried to tell himself that George had planted the idea in his mind, but he certainly looked translucent. It was then that he realized a black dog was crouched in the marsh grass in some kind of deference to the shadowy figure. Zechariah couldn't speak before the dog leapt at them, a dark shape with razor-sharp teeth. He backed up, falling into the grave as George ran off. There was silence as Zechariah slowly got up, groaning and wincing with each new bump and bruise. He expended all his energy pulling himself up to the lip of the hole, peeking over towards the dead tree. The man and his dog were gone, and the stone Zachariah hadn't wanted to break was torn in two. When Thomas Higby passed in 1879, he left specific instructions for both his burial and what was to be done with the woods and beach that he owned. He described wanting to be buried near the Hermitage Hotel with a brick and flagstone base around his grave. Before his death, Higby reportedly told Jeremiah Eldridge that he hoped to stave off the selling of the land by willing it to his niece, Etta Gregory, believing that she wouldn't sell the land where he was buried. His gamble paid off and the property didn't leave the Higby family's ownership until three years after her death. She made a stipulation of her own, however, when she was buried. Her uncle Thomas was to be dug up from his original grave on the property and placed in a family monument with her at the Cold Spring Old Presbyterian Church. His new grave bears the inscription, As clay in the hands of the potter, so are we in the hands of God. Thomas Higby trusted his remains to his family, and in a way, they were all together in the end. But the shattering of the brick and flagstone may have opened more than was intended. 
visitors to the beach, woods, and surrounding wetlands have reported seeing the silhouette of a suited man in the trees and sometimes near the surf, walking a large black dog. Perhaps he has lost his way in the move, or perhaps to Thomas Higby, the beach that bears his name will always be his home. We'll have more from the shores of Higby Beach after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Thomas Higby's original headstone is difficult to find now, as the woods that surround it have begun to swallow it whole. This speaks to a large problem on Cape May, as storms sometimes washed away whole cemeteries belonging to the Cape's earliest settlers. When the Cape May Canal was dredged in the 1960s, several headstones were found in the sand. But some made it to shore on their own, smoothed and polished by the Atlantic Ocean. Rumor has it that some were even incorporated into the design of fireplaces in certain Cape May homes. It was the fireplace that drew Astrid to the house. After months of searching for her first home with her husband Scott, Astrid took one look at the massive stone-covered mantelpiece and was in love. Even though it was out of their price range, even though it was closer to wildlife than people, she had to have it. Scott didn't quite get the allure, but he did like the peace and quiet when he wasn't on assignment, so he agreed. Before they'd even moved in, Astrid had started to dream about the fireplace. In these dreams, she and Scott had three children that sat around the hearth for Christmas. When she woke up, she could see her breath in the June air. If she strained her ears, she could almost hear the children laughing downstairs. It had seemed so very real, and she was sure it was a sign that this would be the place where all her dreams came true, their oasis away from the city, a window to a simpler time. The move went smoothly until it came to hanging their wedding portrait over the mantel the nails would disappear into the grout. The portrait would wobble on its wire. When they finally were able to get it into place, it was off-center. Astrid tried to fix it, but the portrait wouldn't budge, as though someone was holding it from the other side of the wall. She pulled harder, and the portrait fell, the corner hitting her in the head on the way down. Astrid instinctively lowered herself to the ground, and immediately felt the bite of broken glass in her palms. She found blood there and nearly retched, bracing herself against the pale stone of the mantle. She cleaned her wound and picked up the glass, ending her war of attrition with the mantle with a squeegee as she washed the red stain from the stone. It had frightened her, and at times, she feared the house would never truly belong to them. 
But then, the dream of the children returned. She heard them in the living room, their toys scraping the hardwood floors. She heard them in the kitchen, opening and closing the pantry doors to play hide and clap. They seemed to follow behind her as she moved from room to room. But every time she turned, the space was empty. She joked to Scott that the house was telling her IVF was worth it. He heartily agreed. But though she'd taken the hormones, seen the doctors, nothing worked. Next time, Scott said gently, holding her close. They'd take a rest, save some more money, and try again. Maybe they could adopt or foster. She was safe, and they loved each other. That was what mattered. No matter how often Scott tried to remind her that they had already made great contributions to the world, Astrid could feel her sense of failure growing as she stacked the firewood on the porch. It licked at her mind like flames. Months after moving in, she finally saw one of the children who danced through her dreams. Winter had arrived, and they had started using their fireplace for more than just decoration. Astrid curled up with Scott on the couch and watched the movement of the flames. But there was something behind the fire. Between the wall and the flames, she could see skin cracking. Someone was screaming, flailing, begging to be set free. She ran towards the fireplace and stuck her hands inside without a thought. But all she felt was air and warm brick. Too warm. Very warm. How could the child... Distantly, she heard Scott yell. And then there was nothing but an inky blackness that closed around her eyes. Astrid woke up moaning. Scott tried to soothe her, but there was a tingling sensation in her arms that made it hard for her to concentrate on anything else. She glanced down and saw the bandages. The nurse told her that she had third-degree burns up to her elbows. It would be a miracle if she ever gained sensation back. And the child? Astrid asked. Scott and the nurse shared a look before he told her that there was nothing in the fireplace but wood and ash. He claimed the children weren't real and that he couldn't entertain these ideas. But Astrid knew that he was lying. The children hadn't bonded with him in the same way, and he was just at a loss as to how to help them while she was here in the hospital. She must get back to them. She would help him understand help him love and protect them the way she had. On a dreadfully silent night, Astrid rose out of her hospital bed, eased herself past Scott, sleeping in the chair beside her, and called a cab to take her home. They took the dark road to the dark house, and the driver let her out of the car. She could already hear their laughing, and it gave her peace. She thanked the driver and took the spare key from the flower pot on the porch. She unlocked the door and pushed it open, expecting a roaring hearth, the children's laughter welcoming her home. The noises dropped out. Astrid called for the children, 
but she was only met with the creaking of the house as the cold air tightened the wood. She turned on the lights in the living room and yelped in surprise. Of course, Scott had wanted to keep her from coming home, from seeing the fireplace. There was a half-burned body there, spilling strangely over the charred logs. Astrid called the police, telling them that her husband must have killed one of the children. The cop cars raced over, but they didn't see the body. She pointed to the bloated corpse. Clearly, it had been rotting for weeks. The police only blinked at her, puzzled. Their confusion became pity, then disgust. Astrid collapsed into tears, but then she felt the tiny hands of a child on her shoulder. He squeezed it softly, and Astrid looked at him, searching. He raised his finger to his lips. Another voice whispered, not to tell or they would go away. She swallowed her fears and told the police that she must have taken too many pain pills for her arms. They didn't seem to buy her story, but they left anyway. Scott held her close telling her it would be all right. She wanted to push him away from her, knowing he brought death and pain on the people he supposedly loved. But the children's warning forced her to keep her anger inside. The dead body did not move from the fireplace. It stayed there, decaying a little more each day. The smell carried through the living room and into the kitchen, Scott began to notice, but he thought it was her arms. Sometimes the fluid that leaked out of the bandages had a pungent smell, but it was barely a scent in comparison to the corpse. She asked Scott if they could light the fire as the cape got colder, but he smiled a sad smile, telling her that probably wasn't a good idea. She no longer dreamed of children by a Christmas tree. Instead, her nights were plagued with images of children losing their skin and turning into ambling skeletons in front of her eyes. Their organs would drop to the floor in a wet mess of blood, and Astrid would wake up with the smell of iron in her nose. Astrid convinced Scott that he could go on his annual fishing trip with his brothers. He deserved some time off from taking such good care of her, and she deserved some time alone with the children. They played for hours and hours. Astrid's arms had stopped hurting. The bandages were coming away clear. She cooked for them and showed them movies, and each night of the three-day weekend, they curled up together in front of the fire. Then, the screams came. They were faint at first, but slowly grew louder and louder until she couldn't hear her own thoughts. She followed the sound and ended up in front of the fireplace. The corpse had returned. Bugs chewed on the remnants of flesh. But the screams came from a higher place. She dragged a chair over and put her ear against the wall. They were inside. Her children were trapped inside the fireplace. 
She ran to the kitchen and grabbed a knife, stood on a chair, and tried to saw into the grout. Their screams grew more desperate, and she let the knife clatter to the floor so she could try and claw at the stones with her fingertips. After hours of digging, it started to come loose. One stone, then another. Astrid's hands were raw and bloody, but she couldn't feel pain anymore. Throughout her digging, the screams never stopped. She pulled more stones away until there was nothing but air. The noises stopped. The corpse disappeared. She stood in silence, wondering if she'd truly gone mad, if the house was going to cave in on her, just as her life and her marriage already had. She collapsed to the ground, the beautiful hardwoods she and Scott had refinished themselves. Her hands slid to one of the mantel's fallen stones. It was wet to the touch, cold. It smelled like salt. She examined the others, but there were only three in the entire mess that seemed soaked, crusted with the remains of the ocean. She gathered them up in her arms like infants and marched into the dark, her duster blowing in the cold wind. She walked across the marsh and towards the bay, looking for something she could not find. The stones were quiet in her hands, but she swore she could feel them breathing. I'm taking you home, she thought. Don't worry, I'm taking you home. She began to wade into the water, stepping forward as far as she could before she lost her footing. She didn't know what to do. They weren't hers. She needed to get them home. Her sweater was soaked, clinging to her frame like a dead animal. She stripped it off, took a deep breath, and dove, using only her legs so she could still hold the stones tight. The water was dark, and the moon didn't show her much, but a small voice told her she would know when she saw it. And she did. A little spot among the seagrass. Astrid felt her lungs burn, begging for air, as she placed each stone gently on the sand. When the final stone touched earth, she heard the little voice one more time. Go. She obeyed, kicking upwards, but the surface seemed so far away. So very far away. Cape May has been dealing with erosion for almost as long as it's been called Cape May. Even in the late 18th century, it was a common occurrence to find coffins and bodies on the sand after storms. The graves were progressively moved back, but many of them still ended up in the water later on. Their place of rest swallowed by a different kind of great beyond. Coming up, we'll see what else is hidden in the tides of Higby Beach. Now, back to the story. It's rare for tourists to spend a lot of time at Higby Beach. The water is good for wading, but too calm for much else. And now that the nudists have been prevented from holding gatherings there, it's returned to its usual use as a nature preserve and dog beach of sorts, 
since the crowded oceanside beaches in Cape May don't allow dogs during the summer months. In general, Higby Beach is quiet, and that's how both the birds and its visitors like it. But the beach's history is certainly checkered, from its more illegal activities to a brief stint in glassmaking and munitions testing. While the area may look wild and remote now, the perfect home for birds and rare fauna, the remnants of these former industries remain, and they're sometimes exposed by the changing waves at the most inopportune times. Manuel had been looking forward to spring break since winter break ended, but he declined his roommate's invitation to hang in Atlantic City with their friends. What he needed was some peace and quiet, and some excellent bird watching. So Higby Beach it was. There were only a few dogs and their owners on the beach, and they'd left as the sun fully rose in the sky, leaving Manuel, his binoculars, and his beach towel alone. He laid his towel on the slightly wet sand and watched the water slowly creeping up the shore. A less charitable person would have called it desolate, but to Manuel, who had been dealing with the blaring of Philadelphia traffic for four months, it was peace. His gaze followed the sandpipers to and fro as they advanced on the water, only to be punished for their hubris by the tide. He let his eyes slide a bit further out and saw something very strange. There's a piece of twisted metal debris floating in the shallow current. He suppressed a groan. Even when he was alone, he couldn't fully escape the impact of other people. Manuel watched the motion of the water, trying to pull at the heavy rusted metal. His curiosity slowly got the best of him, and he walked into the shallows to investigate maybe do a bit of helpful beach cleanup if he could lift it. As he drew closer, he saw that they were large metal bars running parallel to each other, bound by thicker horizontal ones, disappearing into the sand. Railroad tracks into the ocean, bay, whatever, he told himself. The point was that trains were not supposed to be going into the Delaware Bay. He carefully stepped closer, trying to see if they had an end, if he could find leverage of any kind. He trailed his hand along the red metal until his fingers snagged on a rusted edge. The salt water immediately flowed into the wound as black dots danced in his vision. When the pain started to subside, he lifted his hand back out of the water. He hoped his swift pace looked more of a fast walk than a full sprint but he'd seen a few small sharks in the bay before. His understanding of ichthyology was mostly confined to multiple viewings of the Meg, the Shallows, and Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, so he preferred to be careful. He stepped back onto land, but when he touched the dry sand, he could feel something vibrating. He looked left, then right, lowered himself to all fours so he could locate the source, assuming it was a forgotten cell phone of some kind. But whatever it was, was big. It shook the pebbles and shells, sending the sandpipers speeding away down the beach. The sensation was growing, pulling something from the earth and holding it tight. And then, from beneath his feet, 
something exploded, sending a somehow dry geyser of sand into the air. Manuel jumped back in panic, but when he landed on his back, the sound was gone. He cautiously checked the sand around him, but there were no holes, no indication that any sort of destruction had taken place. Having had enough peace and quiet to last him till the fall term, he gathered his things and began to stuff them in his backpack, preparing to march up the path towards his bike in the parking lot. A cold, wet drop hit his forehead and slid down his nose, followed by another and another. He looked up at the suddenly gray sky. Great. He'd somehow managed to get heat-stroke-induced hallucinations and would catch pneumonia on the way home. It would only be 30 minutes, but what an awful 30 minutes it would be. Manuel jogged towards the tree line. The birds overhead scattered and fled, forming a strange black wave, rippling through space until they disappeared further into the marsh. He followed them, cresting the dunes, as the rain began to make soft dappling in the formerly too hot sand. There was a sound behind Manuel that he couldn't quite place. A thrashing, almost bubbling. He turned to see the gray water pulling at the forgotten railroad tracks with an almost human-like insistence, as if the path needed to be averted. He could hear a sound rumbling towards him, an uneven, even precarious trundling of heavy wheels carrying a heavy load. But when he surveyed his surroundings, there was no sign of people, no signs of anything but beach grass and sand and undergrowth. Something crashed into Manuel, knocking him to the wet sand like a turtle on its back. The rain got heavier. The tide was rising fast, too fast. And as the waterline closed the distance between him and it, Manuel noticed the one place where the bay had not swelled. The vaguest outline of metal was glinting at him from the ocean. The tracks were becoming more exposed. And as his eyes followed the parallel lines to his own feet, he realized they were right beneath him. He tried to step back, but some unseen thing slammed into him again, knocking him backwards. He rolled to the side as he heard another invisible cart roll past and turned his head to watch the sound carry over the wind and rain and straight into the ocean, where the water parted and sprayed for an unseen weight. Manuel had had quite enough. He scrambled to get up, the wet sand clinging to him like cement. He turned away from the sea and sprinted for the parking lot, refusing to look back. Manuel had never been so happy to see his beat-up old bike. He swung his leg over and began to pedal, feeling like he was being chased by a thunderstorm, in addition to being caught in one. The road was two lanes with a sandy shoulder, but there was no one around, so he took the middle of the right lane, legs pumping, muscles screaming. Manuel tried not to think about the rumbles he heard in the marsh. He hoped they were thunder. He only had to ride for about a mile after leaving civilization to get to the parking lot, 
but the road stretched on, empty now and muddy. The little cottages and colonials weren't where he thought he'd left them. He tried to contain his panic and disorientation as the rain pelted down, clinging to his t-shirt as a low mist rose in the woods. Manuel stopped his bike, trying to get his bearings. The beach was behind him. He knew that. But now, the cart sounds were in front of him, too. Manuel tried to maneuver his bike to the side, feeling the gust of wind as some unseen but very heavy vehicle flew by. He pedaled and pedaled as the carts grew louder, but he seemed no closer to the center of the island, to signs of life. Lightning scorched the sky, finally illuminating a small cottage, lit from within by the soft blue light of a flat-screen television. Manuel made for it, leaving any worries about imposing behind him in the rain. He took refuge on the tiny landing beneath the eaves and knocked harder than he probably should have. An older woman opened the door, pizza slice in hand. Her whole family sat behind her, glued to the TV. She invited him in. The Mets were on. She asked him what he'd gotten up to on such a rainy day. He explained where he'd been, neglecting to mention the whole heat stroke and fever dream thing. Maybe the ghost tracks will appear again, her daughter suggested, cleaning marinara sauce off her jersey. I certainly hope not, her mother replied. The forgotten railroad tracks were old and dangerous, she said. And like many things from war, once they get a piece of you, they never let go. The woman's eyes fell to Manuel's hand. It was bleeding again. There are three different sets of so-called ghost tracks along Higby Beach. The only ones that are still visible on the shore are those from the railway line that was used by the Cape May Sand Company to haul sand from the beach to their processing facility, where it was then shipped to glass factories. Another set was reportedly for a local trolley that carried guests along the local beaches and now most likely is tangled up in the bottom of the ocean, thanks to a particularly strong hurricane. During World War I, the Bethlehem Steel Company built their own set of tracks on the beach for the purpose of munitions testing. The parking lot for Higby Beach was originally the start of these tracks, which carried munitions to the beach where they were then detonated. Several undetonated munitions have been found on the shoreline since then. Local resident and farmer Dave Rutherford grew up with one of these undetonated shells in the cellar of his father's farm. After his father passed, Rutherford called the Coast Guard to properly dispose of it. When the naval weapon station detonated the shell, Rutherford claimed that it blew a hole the size of a school bus in the earth. In a busy and highly connected world, any sort of quiet is going to feel a bit unearthly. And a lot of the time, Higby Beach is quiet. It belongs to the birds, the water, and the sky. And the people and dogs that stroll through its wilds and sand are expected to respect and acknowledge their status as guests in this place. Perhaps it's that sense of trespassing that makes people feel watched, 
even when no one appears to be around. Why birders looking for any sense of motion in the trees or high grass see the shadow of a man walking along the dunes. But perhaps they're feeling the history here, the weight of violence, of industry, and of mournful silence. It takes less than an hour and a half to walk from Higby Beach back to what we'd call civilization, with its bed and breakfasts, beach umbrellas, and bars. It's strange that a place so close to people can feel so remote. We're used to sharing space in this crowded world of ours, but when things get quiet, that's when you know if you're truly alone. So take a quick drive to Higby Beach, park in the lot, and take the path to the left rather than the right. Look for Thomas's grave in the woods, or watch the waves for shadows that shouldn't be there. Stay till dark and feel the wind blow. Get lost if you can. This is a refuge for the displaced, the liminal, a land of bird migrations and wandering dead. And with enough time, what is lost is always found. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Paulson. <laughs>